Today in our series, Highlights of the Book of Romans, we're going to come to a little section of Romans, uh, chapters 3, 4, and 5, that section which talks about salvation. And I really wanted to see it all at one glance, and so we have a lot of material to cover, but it's all very exciting. We're going to talk about the amazing grace that saves a wretch like me, and it's a great topic, isn't it? Uh, And one of the questions we're going to answer is this, uh, funeral hope, like when I'm doing a funeral and somebody says, well, you know, I got to tell you, the person you're doing this funeral for is a real rascal, so I don't know how you're going to think of anything interesting to say or encouraging to say because we all just think he's in hell. Like, okay, well, uh, I'll think about how to handle that, and it comes up all the time, of course, in my line of work. So on the question of funeral hope, here's what we have to ask. Are we talking about funeral hope coming from a lifetime of good works, and that's what a eulogy is. The word eulogy is good word. And so we're going to say good things about this person who died. So is funeral hope coming from a lifetime of good works? Or is funeral hope coming from a moment of childhood faith or even deathbed faith or any time in, in between childhood and deathbed? Which is going to be the basis of my funeral sermon? And uh, you might No, it's always the second one when somebody makes arguments like this, right? It's going to be on this possibility of childhood faith or deathbed faith in a moment of time being the means of their hope, their conversion, their salvation. And by the way, which one would strike you as being the most amazing, awesome kind of grace? The one that requires a lifetime of good works or the one that requires a moment of faith in the gospel? Well, again, it's the second one, right? Always the second one. And we can ask it this way. Do bad actors go to heaven? What if you've been a rascal? What if you are a bad guy? Will there be bad people in heaven? That's a big question. It comes up all the time. Well, we're going to start with this idea in yellow, which is really a review of the last couple of weeks, um, the guilt and condemnation of all people everywhere. And then we're going to talk about gifted righteousness by faith without works. And then we're going to talk about some technical aspects of salvation just because you're all good Bible students and you should know these things. Okay? so by way of review, the guilt and condemnation of all individuals in Romans one, we condemn all the Gentile people in Romans two, we condemn all the Jewish people and then when we come to chapter 3, we're going to say a little bit more about the Jewish people, and then we're going to talk about salvation. But we start with guilt and condemnation for all humanity everywhere. And here's what it sounds like in Romans 1.20. Because the invisible things of God are clearly seen, and the Lord has shown them in their hearts, these things, they are without excuse. You see, in verse 20, therefore, they are without excuse. In chapter 3, verse 9, It says, both Jews and Gentiles, they are all under sin. All Jews, all the Gentiles, everybody is condemned. And then you see in chapter 3, verse 19, this is all true so that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Nobody will ever be able to say, well, I don't deserve to be condemned. Every mouth stopped. I have nothing to say for myself and all the world guilty. That's the way chapters 1 and 2 and the... uh, sections of chapter 3 sound. In chapter 3, verse 23, you all know very well, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So all of humanity is guilty and condemned. Now let's talk about gifted righteousness by faith. And we really come on strong in chapter 3 when we start to talk about salvation and gifted righteousness by faith. I'm not going to read all of these texts to you right now because we have to keep coming back to them. 
but I do have highlighted for you critical parts of each of these texts. So, for example, you see in Romans 3.20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified. So the works, a lifetime of works is not the point. It's not the point. In verse 21, the righteousness of God without the law has appeared. The righteousness of God without the law. No standard of conduct is considered. In verse 22, the righteousness of God, which is by faith. So the righteousness of God is given to those who believe by faith. Unto all and upon all those who believe, they just believe. And then the righteousness of God is gifted to them. In verse 24, being justified freely by his grace. It's freely made righteous without regard for works, conduct. In verse 28, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law, without regard for behavior, whether you are a person who is a bad actor or a good actor. That's really just not the point. Uh, You see in chapter 4, continuation of this from chapter 3, speaking particularly about Abraham, says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. At a moment in time, Abraham had it credited to his account. Righteousness. Isn't that something? Verse 5, but to him who does not work, he does not have a lifetime of being a good actor. He does not work, but he does believe, and his faith is counted for righteousness. When you get to chapter 5, you see the idea of a gift and a free gift come up all the time. It's the same word. Uh, sometimes they say free, just to make sure you know it's not a gift that comes because you've earned it. And so, But you see it over and over again in this little section of Scripture, don't you? Uh, the free gift, as uh, you look at verse 15, and then later again in verse 15, the gift by grace, and then in verse 16, the gift, and again, the free gift is justification. In verse 17, for if by one man's offense, the gift of righteousness is talked about. The gift, righteousness is a gift. And in verse 18, the free gift is justification. In Romans 6, 23, The gift is eternal life. The gift of God is eternal life. You see, it just keeps coming up. Gifted righteousness. It's a gift. It's a free gift. And to sharpen it to a more concise point, here's what those texts look like. In uh, chapter 3, verse 24, being justified freely by his grace. See, it's a free thing. It's a gift. Gifted righteousness. In chapter 5, the free gift, the gift by grace. In verse 16 of chapter 5, The gift, the free gift is justification. In verse 17, the gift is righteousness. In verse 18, the free gift is justification. In verse uh, 23 of chapter 6, the free gift is everlasting life. And you notice it's without works, which is just so uncanny, really. Like without regard for what I do, without regard for whether I'm a good actor or a bad actor, without regard, without works. And the answer is yeah. Romans 3.20. By the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified. We don't really consider whether you're a good actor or a bad actor. In verse 21, now the righteousness of God without the law has appeared. Like We're not considering the righteousness of the law. Uh, we're considering the righteousness of God without the law. In verse 27, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. We're not talking about whether he's been a good actor or a bad actor. In chapter 4, again, verse 5, it's to the person who does not work. He is not a good actor. That's not the point. 
He doesn't work, but he does believe, and then his faith is counted for righteousness. So it's not by works, but it is by faith that this gift of eternal life, gift of justification, gift of righteousness is given. So in chapter 3, verse 22, again, the righteousness of God, which is by faith in Jesus Christ, not by faith in Hinduism or Buddhism, it's by faith in Jesus Christ, but it's faith. And it's, it's given to all who believe. In verse 28, we conclude that a man is justified by faith. I mean, it's just so simple. In chapter 4, again, verse 3, Abraham believed God, and that was counted to him for righteousness. Abraham believed. And one more time in verse 5 of chapter 4, it's to the person who does not work, but he does believe, and then his faith counts for righteousness. It doesn't matter if he's been a good actor or a bad actor, and of course, in many senses, none of us have ever been good actors, but that's not the point. The point is, has it come by faith? This is so simple, isn't it? So we start out talking about what is the message that we have at a funeral? Are we going to say this person has gospel hope because he was a good actor? Or are we going to say this person has gospel hope because he had a moment of faith without works somewhere along the way between the cradle and the grave? Which is it? And which one would strike you as being a more amazing sort of grace? Gifted righteousness, by faith alone, regardless of works, in a moment of time. So simple. And you notice what it's not. We sometimes say, uh, when precisely were you saved? That would be like asking, when precisely was your moment of faith? And I'll bet it's pretty hard for you to say that sometimes. Some of you will say, and and I do, I say, I was saved as a five-year-old boy in a backyard club, um... That happened to be at my own home. My parents were hosting it, and there was a gospel invitation. I say, that's when I became a Christian. So we say, well, when were you saved? But then the question comes up, well, what if you don't know? I mean, I just don't know. Or, or when did you say the sinner's prayer, and did you say it right? The sinner's prayer, uh, let's see, where in anything that we've talked about just now has there been any mention of a sinner's prayer? It doesn't exist. We're talking about by faith. And you don't have to say a particular formula the words in a particular order, in a particular way. It's just so simple. So sometimes people would ask Billy Graham, what if I don't really know when I first believed? And he said, oh, well, don't you just worry about that because that's how it is with my wife, Ruth Graham. Ruth Graham was a missionary kid. Her parents were medical missionaries to China. And when they asked, so when did you first believe the gospel? Here's what she said. Well, I have had crisis experiences but my salvation did not happen to be one of them. For I cannot remember the time when I did not love and trust Jesus. In fact, my earliest recollections are of deep love and gratitude that he should love me enough to die for me. So Ruth Graham, when did you become a Christian? She doesn't know. She says, when did I not believe the gospel? So for all of us, not all of us, but for so many of us, because what's true of Ruth is true of millions of us. If we were raised in a Christian home, and you say, Dave, when did you first believe the gospel? When did I not believe the gospel? It'd be like asking me, when did you first realize that your parents loved you? I don't know. I just always thought they loved me. When did you first realize that ice cream tastes good? I think I've just always known that. When did you first realize that hospitals have sadness connected with them? I think I've always known that. 
But when? You, know, you have to nail it down. Like, I don't know. When did you first believe that Jesus loved you and died on the cross for you? Ugh. In the dark shadows of my mind. I just always believed that, and I never stopped believing it. You see how simple this is? It's amazing grace. Simple, wonderful, amazing grace. Now, contrast that with Marvin Olasky. Uh, I mentioned him a couple sermons ago. He had a three-year conversion story. Three years for this guy to get it right. Uh, if you don't remember, he's uh, a well-known journalist, very important uh, journalist, Christian um, and he's talking about November 1st, 1973. So here he is, November 1st, 1973. He says, at 3 p.m., uh, he's a graduate student at the University of Michigan uh, writing articles for the Boston Globe new- newspaper. So he says, November 1st, 1973. At 3 p.m., I was an atheist and a communist. At 11 p.m., I was not. He had just been doing some thinking. Something snapped in his heart. At 11 p.m., I got up and spent the next two hours wandering around the cold and dark University of Michigan campus, crying out to someone. Was I born again? No, not yet. But I was no longer dying. Now we come past 1973 into 1974. At the beginning of 1974. So I read two books that influenced me. The first was a copy of the New Testament in Russia. Later that year, so we're later in 1974. Later that year came the book, The American Puritans, Their Prose and Poetry by Perry Miller. So he's being influenced by all this. Now we go all the way through 1975. He's still thinking, processing, thinking, processing. Early fall 1976, he says, well, I've been reading all these Christian things. It seems like it's time to go to church. So that's early fall 1976. November 1st, 1976. Um, We want you to bear in mind that this process started November 1st, 1973. That's when he said at 3 o'clock I was an atheist and a communist, and at 11 o'clock I wasn't. That was November 1st, 1973. This is November 1st, 1976. He says, elderly Earl Atnip from his little Baptist church in Southern California came to our apartment in La Mesa. He and I sat outside. He did not offer any intellectual razzmatazz, he is very uneducated, just a good old boy, you know, an older fellow. He held up a Bible and said, you believe this stuff, don't you? I mumbled, yeah, I do. He said, then you better join up. <laughs> and so uh, Marvin Olasky says, that was irrefutable logic. So I did join up, publicly professing faith in Christ and being baptized. That's three years after all this started. Query. Now. If he did not, if Marvin Olasky did not get baptized and profess faith in Christ openly, publicly, would he have still been saved? Yes, because he already believed. All right, let's say one day before he and the good deacon sit on the porch swing and he says, well, you better join up. What if one day before that Marvin Olasky had died? Would he still be a Christian? Surely. I mean, he believed, and the guy said, you believe this, don't you? And he said, yeah. But we don't have the indication that that was when he first ever believed it. He had been working on it for some time. So let's walk it back. What if it was three weeks before he sat on the porch swing? Or what if it was three months? Or what if it was a year? I mean, we don't know. But at some point in Marvin Olasky's life, he believed. Even he might not know precisely when he finally really believed. 
But whenever that point was between 1973 and 1976, whenever that point was when he stepped over a line and he believed the gospel, that's when he became a Christian. It's so simple. It's so simple. A little child like Ruth Graham can do it. And it's so simple because it's just a matter of belief. But here's what you have to remember. Gifted righteousness by faith without works is a very unique element in the New Testament teaching. And it comes from the Apostle Paul. Now, this is not an exaggeration. If we could take all of the Paul-authored books of the New Testament out of the Bible, lift them out of the Bible, and hide them away so that no one would ever see them again. Bible readers around the world for the rest of the future of mankind would not know, would not ever be able to suspect that salvation could be acquired without being a good actor, a really good actor. As it said in one place in Romans 2, by patient continuance and well-doing. That's what the whole Bible says, except for Paul, right there. And so we sometimes call this Pauline dispensationalism. In this respect, Paul's writings, lift them out, take them away. The rest of the Bible sounds the same. But Paul's writings sound different. And they sound really gracious, amazingly gracious, not really like the others. Anytime, therefore, a person relies on the books of the Bible before Paul's writings, you know all of Paul's writings occur in a block from Romans to Philemon, and we've taken those out. All of the writings before Paul, say Leviticus, say Matthew, that's before Paul. And all the writings after Paul, say Revelation. If you go to the writings either before Paul or after Paul to derive your doctrine of salvation, you will always conclude that a bad actor cannot go to heaven. You will always come to that conclusion. You cannot help but come to that conclusion. Apart from Paul, we would all, I would conclude, but there is Paul. But apart from Paul, I would conclude that bad enough actors cannot go to heaven. And that's where basically the Christian world lies. If you're in Catholicism or Seventh-day Adventism, where you must keep the Sabbath or you can't go to heaven, or Campbellite denominations, it'd be like Church of Christ, Disciples of Christ, some of those denominations that were built on the doctrines of the Campbells, um, you have to be baptized to go to heaven. You have to. And so they would say no bad enough actors will ever be saved in the first place. And that's one branch of Christianity. Then there's another branch of Christianity, and this is the largest branch. And they say, well, no bad enough actors will stay saved even if they were once saved. And so you could tour all over Eastern Europe and South America and China and Africa. And everywhere you go, the majority of people reading their Bibles are going to say, well, maybe they were saved, but now they're not saved because they're bad actors. I mean, you have to endure to the end. You can't put your hand to the plow and look back. I mean, you can't draw back onto perdition. You can't get the mark of the beast. You have to endure, you know. 
And so maybe you were saved, but you don't stay saved if you're a bad actor. And that's the majority of the Christian population in the world. And let me just say, maybe they're right. Or maybe the Seventh-day Adventists and and the uh, Campbellites are right. I'm not saying you have to agree with me. But I'm saying I don't think that's right. And then at the bottom, there is the Lordship Salvation branch of Christianity. And they say that no bad enough actors will ever be in heaven, despite what they might say or so-called believe. If you're a bad actor, you're not going to be in heaven. And maybe they're right. Maybe they're right. Maybe I'm wrong. There is wide agreement. Wide agreement. In the Christian world, wide agreement that bad actors will not be in heaven. But here's the problem. Paul's doctrine is that salvation is gifted to a person by faith alone in a moment of time and is secure forever without any regard for works. And this sounds very different from the Old Testament and from the end times doctrine of salvation. That's why Romans 3.21 is so very, very important. It says, now, it hasn't always been like this, but now the righteousness of God without the law has appeared. It wasn't always like this, but now it is like that. And again, that was the doctrine of Paul. It's wonderful that we've had these uh, spokespersons for Pauline dispensationalism help us out here. So let's start with Lewis Berry Chafer. Uh, He died in 1952. He is the co-founder of Philadelphia Bible College, the co-founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, the co-founder of the Central American Mission Organization, and the author of the best ever systematic theology, uh, in my opinion, right? Eight volumes. what, What could be better than that? And so he's a pretty smart guy. And here's what he said. The teachings of Moses and the teachings of the end times kingdom are purely legal while the instructions to the believer of this dispensation are in conformity with pure grace. And all this body of truth, the teachings of Moses and the end times kingdom, and all this body of truth, human works are set forth as being meritorious. It was because of human works that blessings were bestowed. This was an essential characteristic of law relationships to God. And it is the exact opposite of grace relationships. You see... There used to be a works element, but now there is not. Now it's all grace. Again, he says, under the conditions laid down in the end times kingdom teachings, life is entered by a personal faithfulness. Such is the human condition that characterizes all the end times kingdom passages which offer entrance into life. A covenant purely of law works is stated in the passage in question. Such a covenant is the very foundation of all kingdom teaching but is wholly foreign to the teachings of grace. He's saying that the church epistles don't exactly sound like Moses and they don't really sound like Revelation. Again, he says, it will be found that the teachings of the kingdom presented in Matthew 5, 7, which of course, remember, Jesus is preparing those people for his kingdom. You know, blessed are the meek, they'll inherit the earth, his kingdom. And that kingdom we did not know would be 2,000 years separated from the second coming. That's the way it turned out. But that's not the way it had to turn out. It could have been, should have been only seven years separated. But that's a big story. It will be found that the teachings of the kingdom presented in Matthew 5-7 through 7 
are in exact accord with the Old Testament. Matthew sounds like Leviticus and are almost wholly in disagreement with the teachings of grace. Matthew sounds like Leviticus, but Matthew doesn't sound like Romans. C.I. Schofield, who also had these concepts, understanding, and, and tried to teach them, he's the co-founder of Philadelphia Bible College, publisher of the world-changing Schofield Reference Bible. It's hard to imagine how important that was in the history of Christianity. Basically, through all the 1900s, the go-to default position of most church-going, Bible-believing Christians was this dispensational theology that's being described here. C.I. Schofield says, the point of testing is no longer legal obedience as the condition of salvation. It used to be legal obedience for salvation, but no longer. When Peter opened the door of the kingdom to Gentiles, the Holy Spirit, without delay or any other condition than faith, there used to be other conditions besides faith, but not anymore. That uh, changed when Peter opened the door of the kingdom to the Gentiles. And now the Holy Spirit, without delay or any other condition of faith, is given to those who believe. And this is the permanent fact for the entire church age where we live. James M. Gray, he was the co-founder of Gordon-Conwell Seminary and the third president of Moody Bible Institute. And he said, in Acts 2.38, to repent and be baptized was essential for the forgiveness of sins. You had to be baptized. It was essential. But this is no longer so. It was so, but it's not so anymore. It's changed. Baptism now follows the gift of the Spirit as a sign of it, rather than precedes it as a condition. William Evans, he was the director of biblical studies at Moody Bible Institute. He memorized the entire King James Bible. Do you believe that? The entire Bible, he memorized it. And then he went back and he memorized the New Testament again in another version. This is a smart guy, and he has a pretty good feel for the flow of the Bible, right? He says, this is sometimes called the age of the church or the church period. The characteristic of this age is that salvation is no longer by legal obedience. It used to be, but it is no longer, you hear the difference, but by the personal acceptance of the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is so interesting, once you've seen this, to see how people accidentally slide into it. So, for example, John Calvin, who would probably rather break his arm than listen to what I'm saying right now. John Calvin himself said the same thing by accident because it's just how the scripture sounds. John Calvin said, do you perceive how Paul thus discriminates between the law and the gospel? That the law attributes righteousness to works? He I don't know why he said that, except it's a Freudian slip. Like, what? You said that there's a condition other than faith in the Old Testament? Oh, no, 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 I didn't mean it. But you said it. The law attributes righteousness to works, but the gospel bestows it freely without the assistance of works. Yes, that's Pauline dispensationalism. He says the promises of the law depend on the condition of works. What? That's Pauline dispensationalism, that there was works, but now there's not. It's different. It's changed. It's so funny. And then... Louis Burkhoff, who is a disciple of John Calvin, again, would rather break his arm than listen to what I'm saying today. He says, from the law as a means of obtaining eternal life, believers are set free in Christ. What? The law as a condition for eternal life? That's Pauline dispensationalism, brother. But he wouldn't like that very much. Let's do a case study. 
In the late 1940s, a new organization after World War II was established called Youth for Christ. It was such an important organization. Um, it, it, it changed everything in American Christianity in, in good and positive ways. There were two rising stars, Billy Graham, whom you know very well, and Charles Templeton. They were both the excellent preachers, smart fellows who had a wide following. But Charles Templeton began drifting away from the Christian faith. It's a very sad story. In 1957, Charles Templeton renounced his faith and he moved to Canada where he became an important figure in mainstream media. He was the editor-in-chief of the McLean magazine, which was, you know, a substantial magazine. Uh, Most of you have probably seen copies of that somewhere along the way. And he also was the director of news and public affairs for the Canadian television network. So a very important guy. Um, In his book, well, in 1957, he openly renounced his Christian faith. In his book called Farewell to God, he says, people must realize that life and the universe have no meaning, no purpose, no benign, that means kind, no kind end. We and our world are no more than the product of an endless evolutionary process. So this young preacher who started out so well has now renounced the faith he is what I would call a bad actor. He's actually turning people away from God. He's using his influence to hurt Jesus. I would call that a bad actor. Lee Strobel interviewed him one time near the end of his life. He did have some Alzheimer's symptoms, but he was still thinking clearly and speaking clearly. And uh, Lee Strobel asked him to assess Jesus. And here's what uh, Charles Templeton said. He said, uh, Jesus is a great moral genius. He's the most important thing in his life, in Charles Templeton's life. And he said, he is the most important human being who has ever existed. And he said, and if I may put it this way, I miss him. And Lee Strobel says, with that, tears flooded his eyes. He raised his left hand to shield his faith, and his shoulders bobbed as he wept. I miss him. That same kind of story could be repeated millions of times. How many people were like Ruth Graham in their childhood? Millions. How many are like Charles Templeton? Millions. This could be repeated over and over and over again. So here's the question. Do bad actors like Charles Templeton go to heaven? Are we looking for a lifetime of good works, patient continuance in well-doing? Or are we looking for a moment of childhood or deathbed faith or any moment of faith in between childhood and deathbed? Which is it? Some technical aspects of salvation. Just because I want you to be smart. And it's in the Bible and you have to know. Justification. Uh, sometimes we use the term just and righteous, uh, the terms interchangeably. So you say, well, that person is a righteous person. And the Bible might say that person is a just person. Justice, righteousness, they're the same in Scripture. And the translator can do whatever he wants uh, when he comes to that word in Greek, just, righteous, either way. So when we talk about justification, we're talking about righteousification, making somebody righteous, and specifically a judge declaring that person to be righteous. So you see in chapter 3, verse 24, for example, being declared righteous freely by his grace. In verse 24, to declare his righteousness. That's it. A judge has declared it. The gavel is slammed down. You're righteous. You're free to go. 
to declare his righteousness for the remission. That's forgiveness of sins. Verse 26, to declare it. You, you are righteous. You are just. I have declared it. The judge slams his gavel down, says the case against this person is dismissed. He is now the just. He himself is righteous. And the justifier, the one who declares righteous, the person who believes, the person who is a good actor for all of his life. Nope. The person who believes at a moment in time. Verse 28. Uh, Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified, declared righteous by faith without the deeds of the law. Again, chapter 4, verse 2, Abraham was not justified, declared righteous because of his patient continuance and well-doing. If Abraham were justified by works, he'd have something to brag about, but he didn't. What actually happened, verse 5, it's to the person who does not work, but believes in the Lord, that person is justified, declared righteous by faith. One more time, Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, being justified, declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God. At the end of verse 9, much more than being now justified, declared righteous by his blood, not by a lifetime of being a good actor. I love this from Alistair Begg. I'm sure most of you have seen it by now. It's been viral on social media for a long time. But it's quite good and quite right. So thank you, Alistair. Here's what it sounds like. Think about the thief on the cross. I can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him, how did, you, how, or how did that shake out for you? Because you were cussing the guy out with your friend. You'd never been in a Bible study. You'd never got baptized. You didn't know a thing about church membership. And yet, and yet, you made it here to heaven. You made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said. You know, like, what are you doing here? And the thief on the cross would say, well, I don't know. And the angels say, what do you mean you don't know? Well, because I don't know. Well, you know, the angel says, excuse me, let me get my supervisor. So they go get the supervisor angel. Angel says, so we've just a few questions for you. First of all, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? The guy says, I've never heard of that in my life. Well, then what about, well, never mind. Let's go right to the doctrine of scripture immediately. And this guy's just staring. And eventually, in frustration, the director angel says, On what basis are you here? And he said, The man on the middle cross said I could come. Millions of similar stories. Millions of them. Like, you don't belong here. You're not a good actor. The man in the middle said I could come. Propitiation. Uh, We don't love that word. We don't love the concept much, but it means you're appeasing God's anger. You have an angry God and you have to do something about that. What are you going to do about that? Chapter 3, verse 25. God has set forth Christ to be a propitiation, a satisfaction of an angry God through faith in his blood. Through what? How about through being a good actor over all your life? No? Faith in his blood in a moment of time to declare his righteousness for the forgiveness of sins. Chapter 5, verse 9. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath. You and God are good. He's not angry anymore. Propitiation. Satisfied. Let's talk about imputation. Imputation comes up all the time, and it is a great word. Uh, it's going to come up twelve time, uh, eight times in 12 verses at the opening of chapter 4 of Romans. And the idea is that Adam, as the stand-in for the human race, sinned, 
And so as our patriarch, uh, we all get sin credited to our account because of Adam. The good news is Christ stands in for his people and he's perfect and wonderful. And so if you want to follow Jesus, then his righteousness will be credited to your moral account. And this comes up all the time in this little section of scripture in Romans 4 and 5. You will see that uh, it's an accounting term, a financial term, and it means that we are crediting something to your account. It could be good or it could be bad. We're crediting sin to your account, like Adam's sin. Or we're crediting righteousness to your account, like Adam's, uh, the Lord's righteousness. And so you can see it's crediting, counting, thinking. That's the idea. Abraham believed God and it was counted. And we're going to move that to his account. We're going to credit the righteousness to his account. He didn't deserve it. We're going to credit it to his account. His faith is counted. It's credited, imputed. And all those, it's nice in English, actually, that the words are toggling back and forth between counted and imputed so that you know they're synonyms. Now you know. I don't know what impute means. You know it means to count, right? So counted, imputed, counted, imputed. Back and forth we go. And we see in chapter 4, verse 20, now it was not written for Abraham's sake alone that it was imputed, righteousness was imputed to him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed. The righteousness of Christ, credited to our account, though we didn't deserve it, isn't that fine? And then there's a big discussion of that in chapter 5, and you see all of the yellow there. Redemption, we have to say something about redemption. Redemption means to buy, but especially to buy out of something bad, and especially, especially to buy out of bondage. And so, chapter 3, verse 24 of Romans, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption. We've been purchased through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And substitution. Well, you know what a substitute is? Somebody who does something for somebody else. And so in Scripture, Romans four twenty-five, Christ was delivered for our offenses. He died for us in our place, in our stead. He died for us. He died for our justification so that we could be declared righteous. And at the end of the slide, you see God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us as our substitute. And we want to close with one more case study that might be helpful. On August 20th, in the year 2002, Charles Colson was still living and he wrote about Elvis Presley. Here's what he said. This past Friday, August 16th, was the 25th anniversary of Elvis Presley's death. Lost in the hullabaloo is the reason why Elvis died so young at 42 years old, instead of still being alive today at the age of 67. As Reuters reports, Presley died of a drug-induced heart attack. In other words, he was a bad actor. He died of a drug-induced heart attack. He was, by all accounts, a miserable man in his last years, often sleeping in his own excrement. Is the king of rock and roll the role model you want for your children and grandchildren? Let's be honest. Instead of an idol to emulate, Elvis is an object lesson in the wages of sin. Now, I don't think any of us are going to dispute any of those points. Maybe the last one a little. We're asking, would a bad actor like Elvis go to heaven? And of course, I don't know. I don't pretend to know. I have no idea. But here are some things you ought to know. In 1935, Elvis was born. He frequently attended services at the Assemblies of God Church that his mother went to. In 1956, at 21 years old, the year he became famous for singing Heartbreak Hotel, 
His girlfriend, Dottie, recalls, we used to read the Bible every night, if you can believe that. He used to read aloud to me and then talk about it. In 1958, when Elvis was 23 years old, he told his home church pastor on Easter Sunday, Pastor, I'm the most miserable young man you've ever seen. I've got all the money I'll ever need to spend. I've got millions of fans. I've got friends. But I'm doing what you taught me not to do. And I'm not doing the things you taught me to do. At 30-something years old, we don't know exactly when, Elvis told his childhood friend Becky, he said, Becky, just think what I could have done if I had become a preacher. Just think of the good I could have done if I had lived my life spreading the word of God. In 1977, at 42 years old, this is eight months before Elvis died, his stepbrother, Rick, who was not a believer at the time but is now, he watched Elvis meet with a television evangelist and recommit his life to Christ in tears. This is eight months before he died. But he still lived badly. He still was a bad actor. In 1977, same year, the day before Elvis died, Rick complained to Elvis that one of his friends kept trying to get him to become a Christian. And Elvis answered, Ricky, she's telling you the truth. People who talk to you about Jesus really care. And Rick heard Elvis praying, God, forgive me for my sins. Again, 1977, this is the night he died. Elvis prayed, Dear Lord, please show me a way. I'm tired and confused, and I need your help. A few minutes later, he told his stepbrother, Rick, again. He said, Rick, we should all begin to live for Christ. This represents millions of stories. I don't even know how many millions of stories over 2,000 years of Christian history. The question comes up then, do bad actors go to heaven because he was a bad actor? Well, Romans 3.21 says, now the righteousness of God without the law has appeared. It wasn't always like this, but that's the way it is now. Now the righteousness of God without the law has appeared. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all those who believe. And that faith is counted for righteousness. So here's our conclusion. Do bad actors go to heaven? Evidently, they do if they had a moment of faith in Christ's rescue sometime in their lives between the cradle and the grave. And if that's true, then this is amazing grace. And if what I've presented is true, this is more amazing than almost anyone even realizes. Can we stand and be dismissed with prayer? Of course, before we go home, I have to give you a chance to look at your own heart. Have you believed? Do you have this faith that is counted for righteousness? Have you ever trusted the Lord Jesus? Have you ever reached out to him the best way you know how for his rescue because you honestly believe in him? As with Marvin Olasky, you believe this stuff, don't you? And if the answer is, actually, I don't even know if I do believe this. This would be a great time for you to express that belief to the Savior before we go home. I'd like to give you a moment of silence to do that. Now, Father, if there's anybody here who has never yet gone to you for your rescue because they believe this, I pray that you'd help them to see it, help them to believe it and come to you. Have the kind of faith that believes on you, not just that you did certain things, but on you to rely on you. And Lord, all of us, who have come to rely on you for your wonderful salvation. We'd just like to say again, 
we are so thankful that the man on the cross in the middle said we could come. Let's be dismissed with your blessing now and a good week as we live for you in Jesus' name. Amen.